Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We have been in a series the last four weeks here that has been entitled The Word Made Flesh. Um, We have been looking at a view of Jesus these last few weeks and talking about how Jesus pretty much gives you the answers, even, you know, for microphones that don't work. But he gives you the answers beyond that to everything in life. Um, Jesus is more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet. He's more than um, a, a really nice guy. Jesus is shown to us by Scripture, and particularly in the Gospel of John, as being the one who not only formed everything, but provides everything in terms of the answers that we seek in the deep questions of life. And so we're going to be wrapping up this week and looking at uh, another angle of this that uh, we don't often talk about. It's, I think it's more rare today in the church, but I think it's something that's important, and that is the, the element of victory. You know, the victorious Christian life or Christian victory is not something we, we, we touch on a whole lot. And I think sometimes for good reason, because it can frankly sound in and of itself kind of self-centered. It can, it can sound very uh, highbrow and disconnected, but that is not really the idea behind it. When we understand victory as it's properly understood from Scripture, we realize how vital it is to the Christian message and the Christian faith. Apart from it, there really is no message. But let's begin uh, again one more time as we began before with John's summary of his good news to us beginning in the first chapter. So he says to us, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. See, sometimes we just miss God. Our will bends away from God rather than towards him, as we've talked about in weeks past. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh, and that's Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through, emanated through, originated from Jesus Christ, as we saw in a prior week. And then he ends with this, no one has ever seen God, that's the Father, but the one and only Son who is himself God in nature and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made the Father known. Now John ends with this statement because I think he wants us to know the most important thing, that to God ultimately, and and ultimately our question is answered in Jesus. It's, It's about his identity 
It's about his relationship to the Father, to God the Father. And it's ultimately about our relationship to him, to Jesus. In fact, he touches on this some time later when he's talking with his disciples who are asking some of the similar questions. How, what is the way to God? How to get relationship with God? How to, how to basically live forever in relationship with God? And Jesus answers it this way. He says, I am the way. Not there is a way, or I'll point you to the way, or I'll teach you the way. I am the way and the truth and the love and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you really know me, he said, you will know my Father as well. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is saying there, not that he is the Father. We've seen that. John has told us that already. They're in closest, most intimate relationship, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, as we saw last week, in in the Godhead. They model relationship. And Jesus is essentially saying here, everything you need to know about God, everything you need to understand about him and have relationship with him, you'll find in me. And so that's why his his identity is the entire focus of this gospel. We've looked at it in prior weeks. One more time. We see that basically this whole gospel of John begins with the identity of who Jesus is. And then it goes on to those who would challenge that identity. You see, he came to the world, but the world didn't see him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't understand. He even came to his own, but his own didn't always receive him. And so we see there's some challenges to that identity, to his claims. He begins to go on to ground his followers, his disciples, in that identity to help them understand how to root themselves and be established in that. And then, of course, ultimately that goes to the point where he is condemned for his very identity. Just think about that. If somebody came to you or they came to me and they said, is your name Mickey Badlamenti? Do you live at this address? Is this your social security number? And all these other things they ask you that identify you and you say, yes, that's me. And then they condemn you for that. Life imprisonment or, or death, penalty of death for that. Imagine what that is like to go through. That is very much what Jesus went through. And then finally it ends with the second and final chapters where in, in response to all of that, his identity is confirmed. Because if you think about this, if Jesus was condemned for the claims that he was God, if he was condemned for the claims that he had the only answers to eternal relationship with God, then if he stays dead, that condemnation has been justified, hasn't it? It's almost as if God was up there putting a seal on it and saying, yep, he was crazy. But instead, if, he's, if his identity is somehow confirmed, if he comes back from that grave, if he comes back from the place where he's been condemned, then his claim is valid. His identity is sure. And it's unique. And it's vital to the Christian faith. Because his identity, without that, there is nothing. There is no claim, ultimately, to the Christian faith. And so how did he validate that identity? And that's what we see, this central and unique thing that ultimately brings victory to you and I if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. And that's what we want to look at. That, I, that, that central claim that he made that would establish and confirm his identity began to be challenged from the very beginning. We see it in the second chapter of, of, the, of the book of John. And we begin to see this already. Jesus was talking to religious leaders of his day. He was proving his authority through miracles and other things. And they were challenging that. Again, they didn't want to receive that. They didn't understand that. And so they said, what sign can you prove to do your authority to all of this? He was challenging actually their religious authority in the moment. And so now they said, show us something greater so that we can know that we should listen to you. It's really just a way of just kind of challenging him and saying, 
It, we don't believe it. And Jesus answered and said this, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now they were standing right near the temple in Jerusalem, the building where they all worship. But notice here how they, how they reply. They replied and said, it's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. I can't help but imagine that Jesus was probably standing there and he probably looked at them and said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. But they missed it. Because like we saw last week, they looked to the building, and the building is just a symbol. It's not the substance. There was something else that is being destroyed, Jesus is saying, in a world of fallenness and sin. And it ultimately leads to a place of, 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 of loss, tremendous loss. And God is about restoring that. What is the building, in other words, that matters to God? Was it those, those stones that were put in place? I mean, they challenged him on They said, you can't restore that. I mean, you're a carpenter, but you're not that good. But they completely missed the point. He was talking about this temple. And I don't care what your faith is. I don't care what your philosophy is in life. I don't care what teaching you follow. Ultimately, all of us yearn for an answer to one thing that plagues us all. And that is, is that this temple is going to be destroyed. This world of sin and brokenness is going to destroy the temple of our body and it's going to end up in the grave and we yearn for an answer to that one uh, particular lady shared it like this one time she said i remember vividly one summer and i was working with a group of kids in an after-school program and a young girl was stung by a bee she had a severe reaction the paramedics were unable to revive her sitting with one of her young friends at the funeral somewhere in the middle of it she turned to me with tears in her eyes and said the cut on her face will never heal See, the young girl who died had a little cut on her forehead from some previous encounter at the playground, and her friend had made this observation in her own shock and grief. The lady goes on to say, I remember thinking how incredibly insightful her words really were. She was noticing something very simple, but there was something quite profound in it. She seemed to be saying instinctively that this wasn't right, that wounds are meant to heal. That the broken parts of life are not okay. And indeed, the wholeness is both our stubborn longing and a most profound calling. We desire wholeness. Remarkably, she goes on to say, this little girl's comment is something that every prophet in the Bible has said. Ones who are trying desperately to open our eyes and, and help us to understand. They, they looked around the world and they saw its broken cuts and its ugly blemishes. And they cried out instinctively, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And she ends by saying, we were made for wholeness. We were made for it, but it's not what we have. We have a breakdown of the temple. And so the scripture, from early on, God knew this, of course, and made us a promise that he was doing something about it. The problem that we initiated, the problem that we caused, he was going to solve. And we see this even as early as the book of Job from way back when, and Job tells us as he's thinking about his God, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. That's Jesus. That's the Redeemer, the Savior, the one who, who restores us and saves us from our sins. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Did he not do that? In the end, he will stand on the earth. And then he says this, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. You see, after death takes me to the grave, I have faith that I will again, in my body that was destroyed, it will be rebuilt and I will see God. Job knew something of faith that we were all going to see one day. And Jesus came to show that the promise 
of, that, that, that was behind Job's faith was sure. The New Testament goes on to tell us the same thing. In fact, it, it even goes so far and so bold as to tell us this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we see this scripture that says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Now think about that. You can go to church. You can celebrate. You can worship. You can serve at, uh, at things. You can, you can go to events. You, you can share your faith with others. You can live your faith out. But the bottom line, what he is saying here, and we can even turn to Christ as the hope of our pain and our suffering on all that we deal with in this world like we talked about two weeks ago. But the reality is, if that is not real, you can put even that message from two weeks ago on a CD about Christ is the answer to all these things, and you can smash it with a hammer because it's worthless. If Christ is not raised. And so you have to ask yourself, was he? And I can tell you that people have asked this question and people have answered it quite well. And one of the ways that was done like that was by a man named N.T. Wright. He said this, and, and, and think about this. He said, something happened back then. Because in those days when Jesus went to a cross and went to a grave, in those days there were many people who claimed that they were going to deliver people, that they were going to save people from Rome, from other issues, that they were going to be ones they should follow. But ultimately and routinely, those people ended up dead somehow. They either ended up dead in a fight or a war, or they ended up dead from old age. Whatever the reason, they ended up dead. And every time that happened, these people went and they found someone else to follow. They left, as it were, that, that particular person who had the answer. But then he goes on to say, N.T. Wright says, something happened in this case that was different. Something happened that convinced these people, this man who went to the grave, it wasn't done. It wasn't dead. And they continued to proclaim him. Why? And it even goes deeper than that. Because the early followers of Jesus were followers of God that were rooted in the idea that one of the most holy days they knew was the Sabbath on a Saturday. That was the day of worship where you rested and worshiped God. And they wouldn't have changed that for anybody's will on this earth. And yet something happened that changed their minds to believe that God, in fact, had adorned, adorned a new day, Sunday, as the Sabbath day. The day that we're told that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week. There's much more that we can go into, and I, I don't have time to do that now, but let's just say for a moment, let's assume that Christ rose from the grave. Then it's as Tim Keller said one time when he said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all that he said. It's authoritative. It matters. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? So the issue, is not, uh, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, or someone else's for that matter, but whether or not he rose from the dead. If Jesus did, then he has the answers. Then he is the direction. He is the way, not a way, but the way. And he will set the direction in our course correct. John Cannon said it this way. He said, if I, I mean, if you're walking down the street and you get to the end of a street and you don't know which way to go and there were two men there, one's dead and one's alive, which one are you going to ask for directions? Right? And that's the world today. There's many people saying, I'll tell you which way to go. I'll tell you how to behave. I'll tell you what to do. But the reality is, if they're ones that are going to go to a grave and stay there, what authority do they really have? But if one were to come out of that grave and be alive, they have a great deal more of authority of what they would tell and, and how they would guide us and what we should respond to and follow. If Jesus is risen, then everything 
about us. Our, 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 our morality, what we, what we determine is right and wrong. Our sexuality, our identity, whether we can lie or cheat or steal or deceive to serve our own interests or not. Whether things like our ethnicities should divide us or whether they should bind us closer together as creations of God, as Jesus would, would, would say. Whether we live forever with God or not. All of these things hang on the resurrection. And we're not talking about just the resurrection of Jesus that, or, or the, the idea of resurrection that is going to be sometime in the future that God may give to every one of us. But what Jesus demonstrated that was so unique is that that resurrection is available now. The power of it is available to us now, and it brings a sense of hope in the moment here. And Jesus demonstrated this in ways that even the people and the followers of God then were flabbergasted by. We see this, one of these examples is in John chapter 11. Jesus comes up to a woman named Martha and her brother Lazarus and her sister Mary, they had been friends of his, and Lazarus had died. And so Jesus approaches their town of Bethany one day, and she's upset, she's distraught. Lord, if you hadn't been here, maybe you could have healed him. Maybe something could have stopped my brother from dying. And in the midst of those tears, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now notice what she says. Martha answers and says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. You see, I know there will be hope then. I know there will be hope in the future sometime. But that's not what Jesus meant. She missed it. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's here now. The one who lives and one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you see what he did? She thought that there was some hope of the future, but there was no answer to the struggle and the pain and the loss now. And Jesus said, no, no, I'm here now. And in my presence, there is answer. There is hope. And so he was telling her, don't, like many of us do, don't just wait for heaven someday, but live the victorious life today in the midst of the circumstances you see because I'm present here. And so it's not just resurrection then. It's the power of his resurrection available now. I find it interesting that he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because Martha struggled with it. I mean, her brother's dead. He's in the grave. So did her sister Mary. We see that she reacted the same way. Their hope was dead. Their hope for their brother to live was gone. Have you ever been at a place where your hope is, is dead or dying? Where what you thought was going to be the case is suddenly you find is on a path to death. Your health, your, your job, your career, your home, a future that you counted on. Some situation in which all of a sudden all you see at the end of that is a grave. And you think there's just no hope in the here and now. Maybe someday in heaven it'll all sort. But right now I just don't have any of that hope. But Jesus brings something different. Just like we talked about last week by the Spirit. He brings something different into the now. There was another Mary that experienced this same struggle. So a little bit later now, Jesus had died, and they watched him die. The ultimate hope they saw expire right before their face. And many of them didn't know where to go with that. But then a few days later, on Sunday, the first day of the week, we're told, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, entrance. Now, look at what she does. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and she said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. She's distraught. And what is the first thing she assumes? Somebody must have stolen the body. Somebody moved the body. We wanted to be able to grieve and mourn for him in the midst of this tremendous loss of our hope. And we can't even do that now because somebody moved the body. But it's interesting she didn't assume that he was alive again because that doesn't happen, right? That's impossible. So there must be another answer. And as she sat there and she pondered that, suddenly she heard one word. She heard her name, Mary. You ever have God called you in a moment when you feel that all hope is lost and suddenly there's just that slightest touch, whether it's your name or whether it's a feeling, and you know that God is with you and he will not abandon you? You ever been there? Because that's suddenly where Mary found herself. But she wasn't there just a few minutes before that. And maybe sometimes we find ourselves in that other place where God's voice is silent. And we're not sure where he's at anymore. Did somebody move God? Because I'm looking for him and I can't find him right now. And yet she turns and she hears in such a gentle, loving way her name spoken. And she turns towards him and cries, teacher. In that moment, her, her hopelessness was turned to hope. It wasn't just hope then someday. It was hope now that stood before her. And we see the same kind of thing with the disciples. There's a larger grouping of them. They had followed Jesus. They had uh, uh, paid attention to his teachings. They had put their faith in him. They'd walked with him. They even knew people. Some people stood opposed to him, and they pressed through all of that, and then they saw him die. And then it was just a few days later that we're told in John chapter 20 again that on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. You see, there were leaders that were opposed to Jesus. They were coming for him, and now they knew that their main guy was out of the way, and who was next? And so here they are reacting in hope and in faith, right? No, they're locking themselves behind a closed door. Now, have you ever been at a place where you look around you at the things happening in your life, in the world, in the culture, whatever, and you say, I've got the answer for this. I'm going to lock myself behind a closed door. You ever been there? Because I think the times can afford that, especially now. And it's an easy thing. It's an easy thing just to go behind a closed door and say, you know what? I'm done with people. Or, you know what? I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm feeling alone these days. I don't know how to overcome that feeling, so I'm just going to go be alone. I'm just going to go lock myself away and retreat. And there are many things in this world that will make you want to do that, impress you to do that. And that's where they were. You see, because they're just like us. They're, they're, these, aren't, these aren't miracle workers in and of themselves. We tend to put these, these, these figures in the, in the Scripture up on pedestals, but they're just like us. And so they went behind locked doors, and yet we're told in the midst of that, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now let me ask you a question. How does somebody come and stand among them when the doors are locked? I mean, he, Jesus was a carpenter, right? We all know this. But he wasn't a locksmith. So how did he, how did he do it? How did he get past that door? Did he come through a window? 
I think that's to miss the point. What, what happened here is Jesus literally has an ability to go through a locked door at this point. He is raised from the dead, and there's something here that we can't even explain. It's flabbergasting to understand this. And that's why they were overjoyed. Because notice, they all had expected, like Mary, like Martha, like all of them, they expected maybe one day God would do something amazing and people would raise from the dead and we could, we could defeat our, our own death. But here he was standing in front of them alive and had actually passed through a locked door. And they were overjoyed when they saw him. We were told that he showed his hands in his side and they were overjoyed when they saw him. That tells us something about the, this type of, of resurrection body that God has promised us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told a little bit about this. Interesting, we're asking that question. We aren't the only ones. They're just like us. And so the apostle responded to the church at that time and said, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? It's a question. We wonder. We're curious. And then he goes on to say something interesting. The splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies another. See, there's a difference between an earth and a sun, is there not? There's a huge difference in terms of the power and the ability and the glory of that. And so he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It, it wastes away. It's, it's falling apart. It's weak. But the body that's raised is imperishable. Anybody ever eat any Krispy Kreme donuts? Just curious. Okay, yeah. Everybody's afraid to admit it to themselves. I'm, I'm with you. Every time that we have a, uh, kids have the last day of school, we celebrate with Krispy Kreme donuts. We've done this for a few years now. And a couple of years back, I think it was, we actually went to the one Krispy Kreme, and they were hot. You know how when they come off hot, right? And so you don't want anything to do with the ones in the case. Those are the ones you want. And so um, I ate one and one and one more. And one more. I think I got to about five or six. And, I mean, I enjoyed it immensely. Later on, not so much. And I remember my wife kind of looking at me at the time saying, you probably regretted that, right? But I'm thinking to myself, if I could do it again, I'd do it all over. <laughs> Those things are like little angels. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm quoting somebody else. Watch Tim Hawkins. You'll hear that one. <laughs> um, this is kind of the reverse of that. That no matter how much we, we, we regret it now, it's going to be so much more then. That is what he's telling us. It's, the body now is sown in dishonor. We have sin. We have shame. But it's going to be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. My gosh, you, you run a mile and you're, you're exhausted. Maybe some people can make it 26. We call them amazing. But then they get tired. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in natural body. It's raised a spiritual body, a spirit-dominated body, he's saying. No longer dominated by sin in our flesh and our fallenness, but dominated by the Spirit of God like we talked about last week, finally and fully. He goes on to say, the first man was the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. And after we've borne the image of the earthly one, then we'll bear the image of the heavenly one. It, it sounds maybe a little bit too amazing to believe, doesn't it? I mean, is this just folklore and fables? Is it impossible I would say this much, and I can't go long into that, but I, I would simply say I, I venture to guess that if God could speak and a universe can leap into existence and all the laws that guide it, including now the laws of decay and sin, I have a feeling that God could speak and all of that can be restored in reverse. Do you? I feel he has the ability to do that. 
And I think he did it here. He began that work here. And so it's not just then, but it was now that he began that work. And that is what they faced. That was the amazing thing about it. So 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say, I, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Some, some will die and go to that grave. And we wonder, is that just that end? But some will not because when he comes back, when Jesus does as Job says, my Redeemer will stand upon the face of the earth one day, then we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet when he returns. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, we will be changed. And when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. And here is the key. This is what makes Jesus different from all the rest. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory now? You see, where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. That has the power over us right now. But thanks be to God, he's given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is victory over death that is the Christian life. Apart from that, there is nothing and so if you're out there right now today and you're thinking that maybe you're kind of doing the comparative religion and you're wondering what are the do's and don'ts that I need to follow and how do these compare to one another and what are the good teachings, some of that may be very valid. It's good to love one another. It's good to treat one another kindly. It's good to give to the poor. All these things can be valid, but the reality is this. No one else has the answers to death but Jesus Christ. He is the only one that has the victory over it. He is the only one that is the way, the truth, and the life. And it sets him apart from all the rest. So there he stood, the deathless one, in front of them, moving almost as though the energy of light through a locked door, energy embodied, timeless, deathless. And they realized it's not just victory then someday, but it's victory now. Now, one more I want to show you because you'd think if anyone got it right, it would be the apostles, the 12 that Jesus named specifically and said, I'm going to send you out, and you are going to carry a message, and you're going to be a chief cornerstone upon which I, I build. I'm the cornerstone, and you're going to be the stones around that in which I'm going to build this church. So they, of course, they naturally, they, they understood it all when it happened, right, when Jesus came back. Did they? Look at this, John chapter 20, now Thomas also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. See, he didn't see everything they just saw. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, which they had seen, but he doesn't believe it, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, which they had seen, but he wouldn't believe it, I will not believe. You see, Thomas said, no way. All I see is defeat. I watched him die. Now, what's interesting is we often call Thomas, we have a name for him, we call him Doubting Thomas. Most people know that name. But you know, it wasn't always that way with this guy. In fact, if you look at John chapter 11, look at what he said when Jesus was going into town and he knew that people were seeking him. Those religious leaders, some of them that were against Jesus, they were closing in and they were a part of his crew and knew they were in trouble. And look at what he says. Thomas said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He wasn't backing off. He wasn't going to walk away. He says, if he's going right into the heart of danger, we're going with him. Let's go with him. If it means our death, then so be it. But see, that was then. And then this is now. And he saw the one he put all his faith in gone. And his faith was shaken to the core. 
At some point in your life, your faith will be shaken to the core because you can't see the way and you don't understand the why and you will be shaken. And that's okay because they were too. And it's a part of it. But remember in the moment, just as they learned, as Thomas sat there shaken to the core, he was told, we're told this, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Interesting, Jesus has this way of going through these locked doors. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus has something about peace. He, he, he's obsessed with this idea of, of peace. I wonder why. Is there anything we tend to lack in our lives? Jesus wants to bring that. He brings it with him. And so he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Feel those wounds. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, that is my life first from the day that I realized that of Jesus Christ. I wasn't always that way. But the day I came to that faith, that statement literally means the Lord of me and the God of me. And Jesus says, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We haven't seen him with our eyes in this way, just like in the moments before Mary or Martha experienced him or, 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 or Thomas or the disciples. They hadn't seen him yet either. But we can know, based on the testimony of history and our faith and the scripture, that Jesus is alive. And that's what he's saying. When you hold on to that faith, you will be blessed. Thomas realized transformation was there with him. It wasn't just transformation then one day. It was transformation available to him now, where his, his defeat can turn into victory. Jesus is more than just our lip service. We need to realize that he's alive, that he is there. And when we enter into this experience by this God-given gift of faith, that we hold on to. And we can know that he will transform those things that pull us away from our relationship with God, from life with him. Jesus is a force of power in our lives if we hold on to that faith. He transforms everything. You, you, could, you could complete sentences like this, and many times we say this, God is in charge of my life. That's kind of easy to say. But what about when it becomes God is in charge of my telling truth or lies? God is in charge of my body and my eyes. God is in charge of how I talk to my kids and my husband or wife. God is in charge of how I pay my taxes. God is in charge of how I check my pride. He takes authority over all these things because he's alive. And he will transform and change us. In fact, in the first week, we looked at four things that are shipwrecking the world of humanity right now. Four, four ideas, four ideologies and Jesus answers and addresses and transforms us in all of these. The first one was autonomism. We're our own law. We're our own creator. We don't need God that is increasingly taking over the world. And to that, Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Jesus is Lord and God. Gnosticism, or the idea that the body is separate from and has no effect on the soul, or we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Jesus said, touch my hand and my side. Notice, I am here in my body. The body is sacred and meant to be connected with our soul. Legalism, this idea that we're, we're holier than thou somehow, or we can, we can hate or look down upon others that are so wrong because we're always so right. It's a dangerous trend. But Jesus looked at Thomas and said, stop your doubting and believe. 
It took Jesus' words to call Thomas out of his doubt because we doubt and we're shaken and we are weak and we need to realize that. And ultimately, Jesus deals with our ego. And in this final moment, Jesus again said, peace be with you to, to his followers and stood there and said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. God, who originally breathed life into man, who had fallen into sin and darkness. Now the light comes, the life comes, and again breathes new, unending life into us that we might carry his message. He sends us to carry that same message of forgiveness and grace to those around us, not to be self-centered in ego, but to be others-centered. It's a powerful message. Jesus says, if, if, if anyone literally is forgiven by your message and you recognize that as such, they are forgiven. That is the power of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he sends us to carry that into the world. And if at any time any of this were to bring up in us a sense of ego or self-righteousness, if that is our victory or that's how we see it, then I would offer you one more thought. Because it was more than once that when Jesus approached his followers as the risen, victorious Lord, he did something. He asked them to look upon something carefully. And we see it again as it said in John chapter 20. After he said these things to them, he showed them his hands and his side. The little girl said of her friend that the wounds will never heal. Her wounds will never heal. Jesus comes and tells that broken-hearted little girl and tells each of us that our wounds will be healed. We have the promise that those wounds will be forever healed and we will bear not one of them in heaven precisely because he will bear his wounds forever. Jesus is not a king that is victorious in an egotistical way. He's not a king that's victorious in the way we understand power. He's a king that is victorious in a way only he can be. And it rents our heart and it makes us realize that there is no other king like him. And that in that sacrifice, in that humility, in that crown which ultimately began and always continues forever in the shape of a crown of thorns, that is what brings us our victory. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this moment and we are led when we think of this at once to be humble and broken but also to worship and we worship not because you're vain or because we are in our victory but we worship Lord we worship because the one who was wounded is worthy of worship and so Lord as we come to a close on these thoughts of who you are. I pray that we would sense the victory that is in you and that we would press into that. 
with true and authentic worship. John wrote that these things have been written to you that you might believe on his name and in believing have life in his name. Jesus is the Son of God. For all within the sound of my voice, Father, I pray that today would be their day to press back into hope, into resurrection power, and into victory into your name. For those who have never known that, that this would be the day, God, that they step forward and say to you, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God, and in you I place my hope alone. It's in these things we pray today as we go forward in victory in your name, the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen.